Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 7.30 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live or via Zoom, please email me and let me know. We can get you plugged in, get you the link for that, or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks and praise for yet another evening together as community, as family, as individuals diving into your word, seeking to be challenged, seeking to find comfort, answers to questions, seeking to encounter, above all, you, the living God. And so we pray, Lord, that we would have hearts, ears, and minds, souls that are open and ready to receive ready to listen, ready to hear your voice. We pray, Lord, whatever may be worrying us, bringing us anxiety, or serving as a cause of distraction, that we would lay those things at your feet, remove them from our minds if we are able to, and just surrender them and this time to you. We ask that your will be done tonight and each day of our lives. Speak to us through the words of sacred scripture. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would guide this time, that we would feel and experience your presence here in conversation with one another and in your word. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome. Come on in. We're in Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13, our gospel for this upcoming Sunday. A little bit of a longer gospel than we've had these past few weeks. So as we normally do... We're going to read through this gospel twice, okay? The first time through, just get a sense for what is being said. Okay, so I want to remind you where we are in the gospel of Luke. In the gospel of Luke, we're in a big middle section where Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem, okay? He's traveling from his ministry in Galilee, and he's on the way to Jerusalem, stopping, having different conversations, moments of teaching. This happens immediately after our gospel from this past week, okay, from the story of Martha and Mary. But it doesn't mean it's chronologically exactly in order, because we know how Luke likes to move things around. Uh, so we don't know exactly where this is, but this is uh, in a certain place. That's our setting. In a certain place uh, where Jesus is praying and then teaches the disciples how to pray uh, in a couple of different uh, teachings, one of which is unique to the Gospel of Luke. So first time through, just listen to this as if you've never heard it before. Try and paint this scene in your mind, Jesus kind of alone in solitude, being approached by the disciples and having this conversation about prayer, and then see what stands out to you as we enter into this scene. Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone in debt to us. And do not subject us to the final test. And he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend to whom he goes at midnight and says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, for a friend of mine has arrived at my house from a journey, and I have nothing to offer him. And he says in reply from within, Do not bother me. The door has already been locked, and my children and I are already in bed. I cannot get up to give you anything. I tell you, if he does not get up to give him the loaves because of their friendship, he will get up to give him whatever he needs because of his persistence. And I tell you, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. 
What father among you would hand his son a snake when he asks for a fish? Or hand him a scorpion when he asks for an egg? If you then, who are wicked, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So three different sections here on prayer. One on how to pray. We have the Lord's Prayer, or Luke's version of it. One on persistence in prayer, with this uh, parable or story about a man approaching his neighbor at midnight. And one about the effectiveness of prayer, and how we ask, seek, and knock um, when it comes to our Lord in prayer. So we're going to read through this a second time. This time through, now that you get a general sense for what's being said, I want you to listen very closely for any particular word or phrase that stands out to you personally. This does not have to do anything with interpreting the passage or trying to be theological, but really just resonates with you. Reminds you of a memory, something going on in your own life. So try and clear your mind of any everything but the words as you hear them. And when something kind of sparks or just resonates with you, hold on to that. Underline it, write it down, reflect on it, whatever you need to, and begin to ask God, why this? What are you trying to say to me through this, Lord, or compel me to do? Our second final time through Luke 11, verses 1 through 13. Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone in debt to us, and do not subject us to the final test. And Jesus said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend to whom he goes at midnight and says, Friend, Lend me three loaves of bread, for a friend of mine has arrived at my house from a journey, and I have nothing to offer him. And he says in reply from within, Do not bother me. The door has already been locked, and my children and I are already in bed. I cannot get up to give you anything. I tell you, if he does not get up to give him the loaves because of their friendship, he will get up to give him whatever he needs because of his persistence. And I tell you, ask, and you will receive. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. What father among you would hand his son a snake when he asks for a fish? Or hand him a scorpion when he asks for an egg? If you then, who are wicked, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm going to take a few moments, look over that passage, reflect on the things that stood out to you. I'm going to take about ten minutes or so to share with those who are around you or at your tables. Uh, feel free to join a table if you're uh, if you want to if you only have one or a few of you uh, and we'll just take a few moments to do that share what stood out to you why you think it did and then we'll bring it back to the larger group for questions and responses if you're watching on zoom feel free to share those things in the chat if you're watching on youtube later share those in the comments but those of us here feel free to do that in the next 10 minutes or so all right i would love to hear some of your reflections, what things stood out to you, as well as any questions that you have about this particular passage. Roberto. Yes. Um, Lord teaches to pray just as John taught his disciples. Mm -hmm. Where does he, what did John baptize? Yes, yeah. Um, admonish or advise his disciples to do. Well, what do we find? Where, uh, is there any way where. Uh, there could be some in like the Talmud or some of the, the Hebrew writings, but we don't have it in scripture. So we don't know, yeah. Um, at least I don't know off the top of my head. But it was a very common question, kind of like the question Jesus got a few weeks ago, um, what teaching in the law is the greatest? 
That was a common question of disciples to their rabbis. You know, which of the laws is the greatest? Uh, and another one was, how are we supposed to pray? You know, if you think of discipleship, is you are apprenticing. So a disciple of Jesus, or a disciple of John the Baptist, was apprenticing with the master. They wanted to learn to do what the master did, to be like the master. And so how do you do that? You ask, teach us how to pray like you were just praying. You know, they're there witnessing Jesus pray. It doesn't say whether he was doing it out loud. I would probably think that he was not doing it out loud. Otherwise, they wouldn't have had to ask the question. They would have just repeated what he did. But then he gives them this particular prayer. Um, so it's a common question in a lot of the rabbinical literature that disciples would ask of their rabbis. But I don't know what John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray. There could be something in some like uh, ancillary rabbinic you know, writings that I'm unaware of, but not anywhere in scripture to my knowledge. Do we know that? Yeah, Katie. Um, Faye has two questions. She said, I didn't realize that John had disciples. And mm -hmm. why would Jesus' disciples want John's way of praying rather than the way Jesus was praying? Yeah, John had many disciples. In fact, Paul encounters some people, I think in Ephesus, uh, in like Acts chapter 19 or something like that, who are still like saying that they're disciples of John the Baptist. And he's like, you guys gotta like get it together. Like, have you not been around for like the past like forever? Like, have you not heard of Jesus? Like, come on. Uh, and so he had, yeah, many disciples. In fact, um, John and I believe Andrew were disciples of John the Baptist. And Andrew goes and tells Simon Peter, John, or he's called the disciple whom Jesus loved in the Gospel of John. We assume that's John. Um, they were two of those disciples. And so um, it's interesting that they, I mean, just as John the Baptist tells them, points the way. He says, I'm not worthy to uh, untie this, the thongs of this man's sandals. You know, behold the Lamb of God. Basically, go follow him. And if you were a good student of your master and you wanted to do what your master said, you would go from that rabbi to the rabbi, the Messiah. So they wanted to pray in the way that Jesus did um, because they learned how to pray from John the Baptist. And because there was that model of teach us, John the Baptist, they brought that to Jesus, teach us. And Jesus obviously teaches them how to do many of the different things that would come with being a disciple and prayer being probably the, the most important of those. Now, the second Something that looks like what we asked for or that is a blessing but really is a curse. 
It's kind of speaking to this distrust of God that we might have. Like, is God really going to give me the right things? Is God really going to give me what's best for me? Or do I think I know what's best for me? And how many times have we been there, right? You know that phrase, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. You know, it's the same thing. If you want to make God laugh, tell him your prayers. Tell him the things that you want. You know? If, if God answered all of your prayers, would anyone's life change but yours? And would your life actually be that much better in the long run? Like, would you really have the things that matter? Would you really be asking for the right things? But that, less so, is what is being emphasized here. Again, more so being emphasized that you have a Father in heaven who you can trust and who will give you good things. So when you ask, when you are in the posture of a disciple who knows the nature of God the Father, you will know what type of things you are asking for, what type of things to expect from God. And when you pray out of that posture, out of that relationship, you will always get what you ask for, or even better, because you're asking for the good. And God is always willing our good. Always. Always willing our good. That's why I love this particular translation of the Our Father versus the one in Matthew for this particular line. Do not subject us to the final test. Versus what's the one in Matthew say? Do not lead us into temptation. Okay? And I remember a number of years ago when they were changing the text to the Mass and updating the translations. Some of you who are older and remember the older translation probably still say the creed a little bit weird, and that's okay. You know, we're all saying the same creed. But, like, you know, they changed the wording to a lot of the things that Mass. They were talking about, at that time, potentially changing and updating the words of the Our Father and the Hail Mary. Because half of the Hail Mary comes from Scripture, and of the Our Father we have here from Scripture. And these types of phrasings, like forgive us our debts instead of, you know, things like that, or trespasses, like we say, do not lead us into temptation— that's really a mischaracterization of, of God's nature. God would never actively lead us into temptation. Okay? That's not what God does. He always actively tries to achieve our good, to bless us, to give us good things. He would never actively do that. God has an active will and a passive will. His active will are the things he actively does. His passive will are the things that he allows in order to respect our free will. So he will allow suffering and sin to happen because if he removes it, he would rob us of our free will. But when he is acting, when he is doing something, that's always for our good. Never for a test or a temptation or a trial. No, that is, um, that is a result of the fact that we live in a fallen world. But God will immediately seek to use those things to bring about our greater good. That's why we have the experience of like, oh, I learned something from that time of suffering. Or that moment of sin, or when I hit rock bottom, or when I had that really dark experience, God brought something good out of it. That does not mean that God's plan for you and I was that we would go through that dark thing, that we would experience that suffering or that sin. Okay, plan A was Garden of Eden. We're on plan like quadruple Z at this point. Like God is just like trying to pick up the garbage and make a beautiful sculpture with it because we make terrible decisions all the time. This is not what he wanted for us, but he will continue to transform all that we experience and all that we do into bringing about something good for each of us, the best possible good, the greatest possible good that he can give us while still cooperating with and honoring our free will. So this passage, and going down to that, that passage about what the Father gives you, both having to do with a proper understanding of the nature of God and how he works in our lives. It's less about us and what we ask for and more about how God gives and what he gives, always being good, always seeking to bless us. Katie. Um, is Jesus calling only the group he's speaking to wicked or people collectively? That's kind of messed up, right? You, you who are wicked. Where does he say that? Uh, or at the end. If you then who are wicked know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? You know, this is a reminder. This is all of us. You know, it says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all sin and fall short of the glory of God. All people sin. Everyone. We will never escape sin this side of heaven. It will always be part of our reality. So if you have this idea in your head that holiness is about getting to a place where I no longer experience sin, you will have anxiety and scrupulosity probably for the rest of your life. Because it's just human nature. Yes, we can try and fight those serious sins and try and avoid the near occasion of sin. But if we didn't need confession, God wouldn't have given it to us. If he thought we could do this by our own merit, by our own ability, then, you know, he, we wouldn't need this constant wellspring of grace in the sacraments. 
So if we have this idea that we're just going to escape it one day and ascend to this like cloud of like, ah, I have become enlightened. Now everything's perfect and I will never make a mistake again. That's just an unrealistic idea of what it means to be holy, what it means to be a disciple. Being a disciple is not about our present reality being perfect. It's recognizing that our destination is perfect and that we're working as hard as we can to get there. That's the difference. So, yes, we all are wicked in the sense that we all struggle with sin. We hear that word in a modern context and we think like, oh, that means like we're evil, bad, shameful. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying more that we have been tainted by sin. It's just a part of the human experience, all of us. We can't escape it this side of death. Some things we will not be free of until we go through purgatory. And that's just a reality. That's why we need the grace of God. That's why what Jesus did for us on the cross is so powerful, so important, because we could never have gotten to that level of forgiveness. We could have never merited our own salvation. Sin is a human problem that needs a human solution, but no human is perfect enough to fix it. That's why Jesus had to become one of us, bring perfection into our reality to perfect us. It's the only way it was possible. That's why we come here. That's why we come to Bible study, especially why we come to Mass, to remember that to participate in that sacrifice. That's why it's so important and so beautiful. Yeah, Craig? It's interesting. I don't know whether two or three different uh, studies ago we were talking about the, the, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And we're saying sometimes we pray to God the Father, we pray to Jesus, but we, can have, we have kind of a, a vision of what they look like. Mm -hmm. But we don't really have a vision of the Holy Spirit. Sure. And so the very last statement here, how much more will the Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Mm -hmm. So I'm just thinking, okay, sometimes it's here like, we're talking about the Father, God, the Son, and like we kind of pass over the Holy Spirit sometimes. Mm -hmm. But here he's saying, I'm not going to give you God the Father, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. I just yeah. thought that was interesting. And I remember, this was on Trinity Sunday, which is why we were talking about it. I remember, I think I said something along the lines of, most of the symbols we have for the Holy Spirit teach us for, hello, God, are you there? <laughs> Most of the symbols we have for the Holy Spirit teach us about the nature of the Spirit yeah. and not necessarily what the Spirit looks like, but how the Spirit behaves or how we can interact with the Spirit, understand the Spirit. And in this context, we're talking about gifts, good gifts. And here we're being presented with the fact that the Holy Spirit is the best possible gift that we can receive from a loving Father who loves us more than anyone could possibly love us. And so in that same vein, that's how we can kind of characterize the Holy Spirit in this context as a gift. Yes, Lynn? Isn't that same, uh, that same verse a little bit like consider the lilies of the field? Mm -hmm. I mean, just kind of um, basically it's comforting to know that, that you will you'll be taken care of. Yeah. Yeah, I believe that's Matthew chapter 6, all about dependence on God from the Sermon on the Mount. Like, look at the grass. Like, it doesn't worry about, you know, which way the wind is blowing. Look right. at the birds. They don't worry if God is going to feed them. Right. You know, so don't worry. And it's the same thing in this context. Like, don't worry. The, a lot of the parallels here in Luke 11 are parallels to the Sermon on the Mount. That's where we have the Lord's Prayer in Matthew. It's Matthew chapter 6. So uh, this section on ask, seek, and knock, that's Matthew chapter 7. But all of that is kind of like the parallel is there in the Sermon on the Mount. But yeah, exactly. A lot of the things that cause us anxiety or worry in terms of our prayer life might stem from an improper understanding of the nature of God. Is God testing me? Is God putting me through this because I did something wrong? Am I being punished? All of those are mischaracterizations of God as someone who is vindictive or judgmental or not loving. And so recognize at the beginning of this, Jesus is praying in a certain place. By the way, this entire passage as you reflect on this this week, this is one of these great what I call litmus test passages as a litmus test for your own prayer life. Like when you look at this, how do you compare this to your own prayer life? So maybe we'll come back to that as we continue. But as he's praying, when they ask him how to pray, the first thing he says is, Father. He doesn't teach them like some you know, ancient prayer in the tradition or something like that. Because remember, the, the common way you would address God for Jewish people was Lord Adonai, or sometimes the title El Shaddai, God the Almighty, which the word Shaddai, actually the root word is Shad, destruction, very terrifying kind of title. These are not very approachable titles, not very familiar, not very relational. And then Jesus leads with Father. 
father pater in, in the biblical Greek, in, in Aramaic, Abba, Daddy. That's how we, that would be a radical understanding, something that the Hebrew people hearing this, the disciple, would never have considered probably before. That God is a loving father. That's why he makes this comparison at the end. Just as you know how to give good gifts to your children, relying on their paternal experience or experience of their own parents. Remember, this is a very collectivistic society where family was everything. Community was everything. We don't have a, they didn't have a lot of the problems we have with broken down families and you know the dysfunction in families that we have where families are splintered and broken apart, not speaking. Like that would have been pretty unheard of at this time. Probably happened here and there, but radically different culturally. And so this would have been something they were intimately familiar with. The image of a loving father who gives good gifts to his children, who provides. So instead of the disciples coming to Jesus and saying, Lord, tell us what to do, and Jesus giving a checklist, you know, go to Mass, make sure you have your collection envelope in your pocket, go to confession, make sure you're praying for your novenas, doing this, this, or that. He leads with a relationship. Father. And that informs everything else that comes after. So the prayer cannot be a to-do. Prayer is a relationship with a who. And that is what informs everything else that happens in this entire passage. Katie. Is God here supposed to be the one with the loaves of bread and we're the one asking for it? And is this encouraging us to remain persistent in prayer? So this passage is kind of about persistence in prayer. Um, so he says, suppose one of you has a friend. So the person knocking and asking for the loaves is supposed to be us. Like we're putting ourselves in the story. And the person behind the door is a friend. Okay. Now what's important for this section of the passage is the biblical um, cultural view of hospitality. Okay. When you came into a village, to someone's home, it was not that person's responsibility for hospitality alone. It was the entire village's responsibility to extend hospitality to you. Everyone had that understanding. So even if you didn't, if you were going to visit someone you knew in a village and you didn't know anyone else in that village, which probably would have been pretty unlikely at the time, but let's just say for hypothetical purposes that was the case, it was still the responsibility of the entire community. They saw that as a collective role and responsibility. So if someone were to show up to your house and you had nothing to give them, that would have been unthinkable. That would have been very shameful. If you were unable to provide for someone else in the context of how they viewed hospitality in first century Palestine. Okay? So, he comes, he persists, and the reply from within is, don't bother me. How insulting, how hurtful that must have been. But then, it continues, if he does not give him these loaves because of their friendship, he will give him whatever he needs because of his persistence. The word here for persistence is a word in Greek, anadion, which can mean persistence, but it can also mean shamelessness. So in this sense, it can be interpreted that because this person would not want to bring shame upon himself or the community, he would, just because of that base responsibility, give you what you needed. So it is a little bit about persistence in prayer, but it is also more about our responsibility to one another, how we provide for one another, how we serve one another. Recognize that we have the Our Father. There is this forgive us our sins and we forgive everyone else. It's personal and relational, communal. And then we have what follows a communal example and a personal example about God, our Father in heaven, who provides for us. Okay, so these are just extensions of examples of how we're supposed to understand our relationship to God in prayer, how that informs our relationship with others, and that we have a responsibility to one another as brothers and sisters in the Lord. To recognize that prayer is not just about me. Prayer is not just about me and God. Like, I am part of a family. Adopted sons and daughters of a family of God. We have a responsibility to one another. To pray for one another. To intercede on one another's behalf for the living and the dead. And that there is this responsibility. That's why there's that passage in the Gospels where Jesus sends out the disciples two by two. And he says, if you come to a village and no one receives you there, shake the dust of your feet at them. So even if you just find one house and they say, oh, we won't receive you, basically this act of shame or condemnation is put over the entire village. 
It's all of their responsibility. Now, I wonder what it would look like if we as Christians today saw that idea of hospitality as this like communal responsibility, if that's how we saw prayer. That's how we saw our prayer life. Not just as like, oh, I really need to start praying more because like I'm just feeling distant from God. But that when I don't pray, pray, the whole body of Christ suffers. The whole body of Christ is unable to experience God a little bit more easily because I am not as close to him as I should be. So as I said, this is a great litmus test, this entire passage, for how we understand our relationship with God, our prayer life as well. Other questions, reflections, Greg? Uh, at the end of our where, where did the extra part come in to say, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory? And sometimes people have that mom to say to our father, mm -hmm. kind of catches me off guard sometimes. Yeah. You know, and other people just say, you know, it just ends the way we normally say they're our father. So where did that part come from? I don't know where it originates. It's a, a common, like, doxology, you know, just kind of a Trinitarian saying of praise. We do say it at Mass. We just say it a little bit after the Our Father in between, but I don't know where it's sourced. It's probably added on by a pope uh, in church tradition as the ending of the Hail Mary was added later, um, you know, by a pope along the lines. It became a formal prayer. So, yeah. Uh, the word persistence stuck out for many of us here. Mm -hmm. What I thought was interesting was the word patience isn't anywhere. So he's just saying, just keep going, keep going, be persistent, pray, pray, but you kind of get in the very beginning of it, um, like a sense of questioning or frustration, like you're like, teach us, right? Mm -hmm. But he doesn't say patience, he just says persistence and go ahead. But mm -hmm. uh, it was kind of implied that they would ask, well, what if I just keep praying and praying and praying and all? And I think I'm praying for the right thing, it's still not happening. Just say be persistent. Yeah. And to keep in mind also, Jesus didn't just teach with his words. You know, he taught with his, like, one of the reasons for the incarnation in the catechism, uh, in paragraphs 457 to 460, there's four reasons for the incarnation. The reason why Jesus became man. And one of them is to show us, or to be our model of holiness. Basically to show us how to live. Okay, Jesus is God. Does Jesus need necessarily to pray? No, but it's in his nature. He's like completely in perfect unity with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. They are perfectly unified, three persons, one God, as a trinity. And so, of course, it would be in his nature inherently to pray, but he didn't need it to himself. It's not like he was missing something, and he needed to pray in order to regain that. He was doing it as an example for us. He has an audience here. They're seeing him pray. So he is teaching by example. So that level of patience that may be absent in the text that he says would have been completely evident in what happens to Jesus going forward. Imagine being a disciple, hearing the words of Jesus here, where it says, ask and whatever the Father wants, he will give you. And they say, all right, whatever Jesus asks for, he's going to get, so let's keep following him, let's keep following him. And then all of a sudden, he dies on the cross. You're like, I don't think that's what he was asking for. Like, how do we understand this? It's because he and his actions was the model of what it means to be patient, what it means to know that God's will is greater than ours. Sometimes we don't know what we want, but God knows. And so when we bring things to prayer, even if we don't have the answer, especially if we don't have the answer, we bring them to prayer and God will always answer. Did you know that God answers every single one of your prayers? Sometimes the answer is no. And sometimes the answer is not yet. Yeah? I just wanted to go back. I just wanted to check... Please, yeah. My scripture is really quick. Um, that for thine is the kingdom, the power. In a lot of Protestant Bibles, it was at the end of that Matthew scripture, but it's being taken out. I, oh. I believe so. I know it's not in, in our our scriptures, but in some of the Protestant versions, it's there. So that's why they pray it. They say it's part of the scripture, and then we took it out. Mm. So it might be part of the Masoretic text, right. the Hebrew text so, that they were I, I to. go back and look at that. Don't quote me on that, but I think that's right, though. Yeah. Yeah, so I'll go look and see if I can find some of the, the other versions of yeah. the scriptures. Yeah, that's a great point, because yeah. we use the Greek Old Testament, which is why we have the seven books that we have that Protestant Bibles don't. And when they were developing the Masoretic text, the Jewish text, it was very common for rabbis to add things in writings. So if you look at like different rabbinical writings or commentaries, like rabbis write in the margins, and then more rabbis comment on that commentary, and it just all of it becomes scripture. 
So there's problems with, that you run into when you use that translation that like you're not sure what was in addition and what was actually said by Jesus. So that makes total sense. Thanks for looking at that. I think that's right. But I'll verify and tell you next week. Sounds good. Awesome. We're going to hold you to that part. Next week. Next week. What's the suggestion? So, yeah, but yes. Uh, what's the, uh, the Greek word for prayer? What does it translate to? Like, what's the definition of That's a good question. It didn't seem to me anything. Uh, that struck me out of like left field. So let me see. The reason why I ask is because you know I think of this stuff and it's um, and I always go back to the world versus kind of the spirit. So mm -hmm. Two worlds, and so if you're praying for things that are not going to make you feel fulfilled, then you're not going to be fulfilled. Yeah. But if you see God, then you will be fulfilled. So it's like you get what you. You know, you, if you ask, you will receive. And so in this, those cases, too, we think of things too often in, in the worldly view when we talk about like Lamborghini, but maybe it's not about that. Rather, it's about are we seeking God or not? Yeah. So the word for prayer is prosiokomai in Greek. So it's a you know, $5 party word next time you're at your party. Do you know the Greek word for prayer is prosiokomai? Um, but it comes from the word pro, or pros, which means toward, facing toward. Um, and then iokomai, which means to speak out or to make a vow, to express a wish. So it's basically you're expressing a vow or a wish toward something or someone, usually um, God, obviously. So, yeah, kind of going to what you're saying, like we're expressing toward the person who knows what we want. Like, do we really know? You know, are we, do we have the right ordered desires? And what this does, what this, this, our Father, the Lord's Prayer, what it gives us is a properly ordered model for prayer. We start with relationship, Father. Do we recognize God as a loving Father who we can come to? Do we recognize that his name is holy, hallowed, meaning he is set apart. He is not like us. He's not plagued by the earthly difficulties of temptations to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Like He knows what's best. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He loves us better than we love ourselves. So we ask then, his blessing and provision on our future, your kingdom come. It's about our future. Give us each day our daily bread, our present, providing for us now, here in this moment. And forgive us our sins, the things that we have done in the past. And then recognizing we need to forgive others and asking to be protected from temptation. That is a great model for prayer. You can pray things like the Lord's Prayer. You recognize who God is. You praise him. Praise you, God. Thank you for this day. I present to you the things that are coming up, my future. I ask you for you to help be present to me today in this moment, the things that are going on. Forgive me from the things that I have done. You know, and then I pray for those who are around me who are in need, those I've hurt, those who are in need. And protect me, Lord. Protect me from evil. Protect me from those things or beings that are seeking to attack me or throw me off course. It's, it's exactly the model of the Our Father. That's why it's considered the perfect prayer. That if we're praying properly, we're either praying the Lord's Prayer or we're praying something that sounds like it in our own words. That's kind of what Jesus is offering us here. It's like a rubric, a template. Katie? Um, so I think, since in this passage, Jesus asks us to persist in prayer, are there ways we can tell if his answer is no to a prayer versus persisting to pray for something else? Mm, that's a great question. Um, ways to determine if his answer is no. Um, pray for the Lamborghini doesn't show up. Pretty clear now. Um, but, um, you know, thinking about these things, you know, recognizing we have a God who loves us who's going to provide for us. Um, he answers every prayer. Sometimes the answer is no, but sometimes, as I said, the answer is not yet. So that's part of discernment, is understanding, like, is this something that God is preparing me for? St. Augustine, actually, he put it something like this. He said, uh, that God sometimes delays in answering our prayers because our heart needs to expand and grow larger in waiting for the blessing that he intends to give us because we're not ready to receive it yet. And so there's something in the waiting and trusting in God in the waiting that grows our capacity to receive, our ability to 
experience what God wants to bless us with. And it would be too overwhelming otherwise. I get the image of like, um, maybe you've seen videos like, like this, when people find dogs who've been like abandoned and who come from very abusive households. And someone comes up to this dog and tries to love it, tries to love it too hard, too fast. And the dog responds, scared, wants to defend itself. It's angry or it just tries to bite. And it takes like this kind of slow trust building. And then you see progressing like they finally able to get the dog in the car. They're finally able to wrap in the blanket, take it home, give it a bath, shave off all the, the mangy hair, take them to the vet, get them what they need. And slowly this dog begins to, to trust them. It's the same thing with us. Sometimes we ask for things and the love and the blessing of God that he wants to give us would be so overwhelming and overpowering for us in that state, we wouldn't be ready. We would just shun it and be like, no, I can't. That's a great analogy. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Or the same thing as being locked in a dark room and going outside in the sunlight for the first time. The sun is too bright. You know, when we, when we get too close to what we're not ready for, we're not, our eyes or our hearts are not adjusted to, it can seem as though it's bad. And so sometimes God delays in answering our prayers until we are ready to receive them. So part of that is the discerning. And so I like to imagine prayer and like my relationship with God and a lot of things that happen in my life as uh, I'm in a room that is a, a big room that has a bunch of doors and windows, okay? And some of these doors are open, some of them are ajar, some of them are locked, some of them are shut and boarded up, like there's no way I'm ever getting in there. And all the things I want in life or ask God for are like trying to go through one of these doors or windows. And so I can stand at this door over and over and over again and keep asking God, like, please, just open this door. I really want this thing to happen. Please open this door. Please open this door. And it's not opening and not opening. And I can spend years not recognizing that if I just turn around, there's a room full of open doors. All these other things that God is trying to get me to notice or trying to bless me with, but I'm not paying attention. So part of discerning whether God is trying to answer your prayer is making sure you're not so narrowly focused on this one thing that you're missing everything else. You know, I've talked before, I think Father Mike Schmitz puts it as the four doors of discernment. You know, is this opportunity or thing I'm praying about, is it open or closed? Like, is this even available to me right now? Is it something good or bad? Like, is it something that aligns with the morals of what our faith teaches? Because that's what God wants for us. If we're asking for something that's going to put us in a uh, morally compromising situation, God obviously doesn't want that for us. Is it wise or is it unwise? Is it kind of practical at this time of my life? Are things aligning financially, relationship-wise, you know, where I live, what I do for this to happen? And do I want it or do I not want it? Sometimes we ask for things we really don't want, but because we feel pressured to, because everyone else is doing it. And we can ask those questions. We can begin to take a step back and see, like, okay, am I asking for the right things? Is God even going to answer this prayer, like in a positive way? Is he going to give me this no matter how long I ask for it? Like, am I asking for something that's just really not good for me? And am I turning around and looking at all the other doors and windows in my life that might be open? Or am I just narrowly fixed on this thing? And so sometimes life just looks like trying the doors, trying the windows. Sometimes it looks like trying to crawl through that high window that we really, really want. It closes on our fingers and it hurts. Sometimes God opens a door just so you can peek in. You know, if maybe if you're discerning the religious life, you're discerning the married life. We're supposed to discern all of those things. And some of those doors we just peek in. We see what that life is like. We experience it a little bit. And then God says, okay, now you've seen it. Now I'm going to call you somewhere else. But that's how I see my life. And it helps me understand how God is trying to show me different things, offer me different opportunities, different blessings. And how at times I have to really ask myself, am I so narrowly fixed on this one thing that I think will make me happy? Am I putting all my eggs in this basket? Because if I'm doing that, then this prayer, this thing, whatever it is, is becoming my savior. And Jesus is not that for me right now. And I need to realign and recognize my fulfillment, my satisfaction, my happiness comes from the Lord. Regardless of what he gives, what door he closes, opens, leaves shut, unlocks, whatever it is, he is where I find my fulfillment. And if I trust in him as a father, a loving father, who provides good gifts for his children, then I can always trust that what he's going to give me is going to be good. All the desires of my heart will be fulfilled in some way or another. All the longings I have and all the longings you have, God will fulfill them in one way or another. Do we always ask for the right ways? No. But if we trust that he is a loving father, then we can wait patiently 
and allow our hearts to expand until we're ready to receive what he has to give us. When I look back at my life and I look at all the other things that I've done, when I was a professional chef, when I was studying to do film composition and music, is a weird, unique way that God brought all of these different skills and life experiences together to be perfectly oriented to me being here and needing the certain gifts and experiences, talents, whatever it might be that I needed to serve in this ministry at this time in history, at this particular place, to all of you for us to do this together. And I'm sure you can look back at your own life and see how your own experience has been interwoven into who you are now in such a life-giving way. You know, we say it this way, that God writes straight with crooked lines. Even our mistakes, even the things that we've done and experienced that might be seen as negative, like they all have led to some beautiful moment where all of it has coalesced to right here in all of our lives in this moment. Seven billion people on the planet, and we, this group of 30 of us, is here in this room tonight, all together. And one of us could have made one different choice, and this room would be different. But God is a loving Father who provides for us, who knows how all of this stuff is working. He knows what he's doing. And I'll tell you, I never realized how loving God was or had a real good perception of God the Father until I became a dad. It just said, well, it didn't never clicked for me until I became a dad. And I saw a child who just I was immediately in love with. Whereas every other person I'd ever encountered in my life, I had to qualify. Like, do I trust them yet? Am I willing to love them? Am I willing to trust them yet? But this person, this, you know, Hannah, my daughter, came into the world and it was immediate. She didn't have to do anything to earn my love. I didn't think she was going to, like, stab me in the back suddenly as a baby. Like, no, she's innocent, you know? Like, I don't have to worry. You know, it's just complete devotion to her. Completely unearned. She did nothing, and yet I loved her. I've shared this story so many times, but I love it so much that when she was like three months old, I was changing her diaper on the changing table, and she pooped. And so I was like, did you make a poopy? I love you so much. And I heard God tell me in that moment, that's how I look at you when you sin. Did you make a sinny? I, I love you so much. And I was like, I was at like trying not to get all this on my hands. I was like, God, not right now. Like, I can't handle this. Like, I was like so moved by like the Father's love for me because sin is in our nature. Just like doing that is in our nature. Like, we can't help it. I can't be like, will you just stop and never do that again, please? Like, that would be totally unreasonable for me to ask my daughter or expect of her. And yet, it is messy and inconvenient. And yet, I love her just the same. Sin is the same way. It's messy. It's inconvenient. It's not, well, that's good for us, but sin is not good for us. You know, never mind getting into biology. But anyways, yeah, we need, we need to go to the bathroom. But anyways, we don't need to sin. But you get the analogy here, you know? And when we are in that state of feeling like, oh, I'm so bad, I'm so, you know, gross because I did this, or I'm ashamed that I did this, or I have this in my past, and I felt that many times in my life before, in that moment, I just felt how God looked at me in the same way that I looked at my daughter. And so whether you're a parent or not, if you, or you've experienced that kind of love from your own parent, like there's so many examples of how God's love as a loving father informs how we interpret this passage, how we're going to pray about it this week, how we're going to hear it and receive it when we, when we receive it on Sunday. But to recognize, like first and foremost, when they ask Jesus how to pray, he leads with that relationship. Not Lord, Master, the Almighty, Powerful. God is all those things. But he leads with Father relationship. So how is your relationship with God? Is it a God who you entrust with your past, your present, and your future? Is it a God you allow to work in your life in such a way that others around you are blessed, that forgiveness flows out of you, generosity flows out of you, that you are willing to trust, you're willing to provide for the needs of others when that is presented, and you're willing to trust in moments of difficulty, in moments of discernment, when you're not sure what to pray for, when you feel like you're asking for the right things or seeking him or knocking at that door, when you're not sure what's going on, do you trust that God is a loving father who is going to provide for you? And is not only going to give you what you need when the time is right, but will give you and has given you the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that animates us and, and makes us into something completely different, completely new. So do we have that trust? And if not, what is standing in the way? Those are great litmus test reflection questions as we read this passage this week. And the last thing I want to share with you as we close, recognize this. In verse 2, Jesus says, when you pray. 
Not if you pray, when you pray. There's an expectation here as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus, that you pray. It's a given. Not if, when. And when Jesus was praying, what was he doing? In a certain place. And when he had finished. Do you have a certain amount of time that you block off in a certain place that is devoted to prayer? Whether it's a place in your heart or a place geographically that you can enter into prayer, a space where you can be with Jesus consistently. And then when you enter into prayer, do you bring this trusting relationship, seeing God as a father, to that time? Or do we run through kind of the laundry list of, here's the Catholic to-do list things that I'm supposed to do that make me holier, that people told me to do. Am I leading with relationship? So this week, as we reflect on this passage, as we prepare to hear it proclaimed on Sunday or on Saturday night, let those questions, let this passage kind of wash over you and ask yourself, how does this measure up? How does my prayer life measure up to what Jesus is asking me and offering me in the teaching this week? Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you, Jesus. Praise you. You are so good. Help us to be reminded that we can trust you. That you have revealed to us a God who is father, who is dad. And whether that is a loving term and relationship or one that has difficulties in our past to recognize the perfect version of fatherhood that we know should be expected or that we may have experienced something close to, that is what God is offering us. Is a longing that we all experience in our hearts. And so we pray, God, that we would be able to come to you as your children, to better trust in you, to know how to ask for the right things, to know how to discern and how to hold fast, have faith in you when we're not sure where you are leading or how you are answering. We pray that in the waiting, in the discerning, we would experience our hearts growing to prepare to receive the great blessings you have in store for each one of us. So as we close, let us pray together the words that our Savior taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.